Hello everyone, this is Product Book Club podcast, part of productbookclub.com, where we meet once a month to discuss a book related to product management with other product colleagues. To check the upcoming discussions and join us, visit productbookclub.com. Welcome everyone to the Product Book Club. Uh, my name is uh, Carlos, and today we're going to discuss the book uh, Inspired but, um, by Marty Kagan. And we're very excited to have uh, Marty with us today, so thank you very much for, for your time. Marty is going to stay with us for around an hour, right? And uh, yeah, it's uh, as I've mentioned on the emails, uh, please everyone feel free to ask questions. And uh, I would like this to be a, more of a discussion, right? Right, and uh, us just bombarding Marty with, with questions. And uh, yeah, if, uh, if you're asking the question, of course, please mention your name from where you're calling so we know with whom we're speaking. Uh, if you're not speaking, then please mute your mic as well so we can avoid some uh, external noises. And uh, yeah, I assume everyone has uh, read the book, right? So maybe knows a bit about Marty, but Marty, maybe we can start also with a quick intro uh, from you. Okay, well, if you did read the book there, you've probably heard quite a bit about me, <laughs> but um, yeah, I've been doing product for, for really, for my whole career and uh, started as an engineer and then got interested in learning more about the product side and uh, have been doing both really. I've been, I, I focus really on product teams is my interest, uh, product management, product design and engineers. But I also talk probably more about product management than any of the others because, because there aren't a lot of people that talk about that. Most people wanna talk about engineering or design. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, which is sort of like the first uh, thing I, I, I wanted to mention. I, I finished reading the second edition, and I think indeed you also mentioned it compared to the first one. It's uh, like a, a more focus on the product manager, right, on the product uh, team as a whole, right? Why, yeah. why do you think there is not that many books or resources that, that talk about the role in itself, right? Because we have discussed books before, and Indeed, it's related to product management, let's, let's say, or to the teams, but that only talk about the role specifically, indeed. I, I don't see that many. Yeah, it gets pretty complicated, but the, I think the fundamental issue is, is because uh, there are really three different ways of doing product out there. And the way you do design and engineering is not that different. That's pretty much the same. But the way you do mm -hmm. product, management is very different based on those three kinds of teams uh, and three styles of doing product. And because of that, it's really confused out there. There's a lot of very conflicting messages. So a lot of people get very confused as like, well, this person said one thing and another person said another thing, and it makes absolutely no sense. And what I think is really going on is they're describing a different one of those three. And I mean, yeah. to make matters worse, uh, the best teams, in my opinion, are the least common as well. The, they're, they're harder to do. So most of the people that talk about product are really talking about the more common, less impressive teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I, I also, you know, when, when reading the book, indeed, it also says, right, this is... Uh, aim at product managers, but then reading, I, I think it's also, or I've also recommended it to uh, engineers or developers, because I think to a certain degree, it also helps 
then uh, held us accountable, right? Or to know what to expect also from the role, which I think is uh, a good way also then to for, for us to to put the expectations high, I think, on, on what we should be doing. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I, I also saw that the main difference, or well, a difference from uh, the first edition to the other one was uh, there is a, a whole new section on the culture, right? Because I think on the first edition is a process, product, people. On the second one, I saw that indeed there was a whole new section on, on culture. Why, why did you see it having to add on the second edition? Was it maybe you saw more like a, a need for that culture or it was becoming more critical? Well, culture has always been important for sure. Uh, the biggest section that was new in the second edition, I mean, the, the, every page was new. It was a, a whole new iteration of the book, but the biggest section that was new was product at scale talking about how do you deal mm -hmm. with product with large organizations. And in fact, that's um, that there's a new book I have coming out that really turns that whole topic of product and scale into a full book, um, because that really is a complicated okay. topic. Um, culture is a part of that. Yeah. How, how, how do you see uh, with culture, you know, like with, um... Do you think then it should be more aimed maybe at like the top level or something that, you know, from the product teams can be more influenced, like, you know, down to top or? Yeah, I mean, culture, it's really, the, the product teams don't really set the culture. The leaders of the company set the culture, especially the founders. Um, if you're interested in culture, the best book I've seen on that is Ben Horowitz's new book. And I would strongly recommend it. Yeah, you, uh, what you are is, or what you do is who, who you are is what you do. It's got some name I'm always confusing, but uh, it's a, it's, I can share the link here if you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a question uh, also related to the culture. So in, uh, um, so my name is Timur. I'm a front-end developer in booking.com. Um, so Marty, in your book, uh, you give a lot uh, of lists or checklists uh, of uh, how things should work and uh, or list of ideas like what, what's the ideal things to have and while reading this I was missing this part of uh, what are the actual things uh, that might bring company to the state to this ideal state uh, and what are the things that might bring and foster the culture and the right culture and second question is a follow-up is basically is it possible to do it bottom up uh, solution not only because in booking.com we have a lot of uh, developers and uh, a lot of levels of management so it's much harder to sell the idea to the leaders rather than it's easier to do it uh, locally i would say so what's your advice about fostering the right culture yeah it's a huge topic um i just actually shared two links one was the link to ben's okay. book but the other one was mm -hmm. to your question, Timur, um, uh, how do you, the way we usually frame that is how do you transform an organization? How do you move to become a great organization? And it's worth noting, like one of my favorite startups from many years ago was in Amsterdam called Booking.com. I mean, the original Booking.com. 
Uh, as you know, they, they were acquired and then they sort of rebranded the parent company. The reason the parent company wanted to do that, of course, is because the, the realbooking.com did an amazingly good job. And they, they were an extremely good startup with just, uh, they were doing product the way I think you should do product. And I had a chance to work with some of those people and they, it was wonderful to see them disrupt their space. Today, I don't know, we're 15 years later, something like that. I, I was trying to remember when I was first in Amsterdam with booking, but um, you know, when companies get big and they get acquired, they often lose that, what made them great. It happens all the time. I've written about that. It's really unfortunate. Um, and that usually happens when the founders leave and, you know, the big corporate types take over and try to, you know, it, it just goes south. And so there are companies that have had to reef that discover that again. Microsoft did that. They've just been turning around. It's been great to see. Disney did that with Pixar. Uh, Apple, of course, mm. did that. It's not impossible to do it, but it's hard. But you had asked also, how do you, how do you change if um, from? Can you do it from the bottom up? And I don't want to mislead you. I only know of one case in my entire career where I've seen that work. It's very, very hard to change from the bottom up. And in that company, which was actually the BBC uh, mm -hmm. in London, the reason they could do it was because their most senior leadership is a political appointee. They're not even a regular CEO. They're a political appointee. And they basically don't know much about what's going on. And as long as it's good, they're, they're, they're happy with it. So it was a very unusual culture. And I think that was necessary to pull that off. It is very hard for you to change meaningfully from the team level. You can you can certainly adopt better techniques. You can certainly become a better skilled team, but it's very hard to change the culture and to really transform. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the answer. Uh, Marty, I have a question. Can, can yeah. you all hear me? Yes. Yes. Hi, this is Ankur. I'm uh, right now in the US. I am a senior product manager with Wayfair. I've read your book long ago, Marty, and I have followed all your, a lot of your blogs. What I really love about uh, what you do and what you've been doing is you're, you're not hesitant to talk about the hard, hard things. And the hard things being that, you know, preaching product management is one thing and taking it into organizations and organizations at scale is another battle, like you were just talking about. Um, and through your learnings and through your pitching these things out in the organizations, you're, you are advancing product management. So it is, it is great to see, uh, what the question I have for you is, where do you see this going in another five years, 10 years, uh, from here, will we be able to win this battle? The battle being, you know, doing product management, right? <laughs> uh, that's that's my question. What's what what's your success criteria in five to ten years from now? Uh, that's a hard question, and it, honestly, it depends on my on the day. Um, I lately I feel like we're losing that war. Um, if you look at um, yeah, I, I mean, I, there I mentioned at the beginning that there were three ways people do product, and yeah. 
you know, I talk about product teams, real product teams working and uh, all the best companies I know, this is how they work. But unfortunately, there are a lot of other kinds of companies out there. If you go to most big banks, for example, they have huge numbers of developers, but they have, and they have lots of people called product managers, but they're not doing any kind of product that you would recognize. It's, uh, they're usually running this process called SAFE. Do you know what SAFE is? It stands for Scaled Agile Framework, and it's not agile mm. in any sense. That is just marketing. And yep. you know, yeah. when you look at that and you see how that grows because so many clueless leaders think that's a good thing, um, you, you, it's easy to lose hope that companies will ever be able to do good work anymore. Um, and honestly, if your company is using a process like that, I literally don't know how you can do any modern product that way. You really have to go to a company that at least has what we call feature teams. So I'll, I'll shed some light in that uh, moment of despair. The company was LexisNexis. They were doing safe when I joined the company. And after a workshop by SVPG, SVPG came and did a workshop. Um, and everybody was on board, the leadership was on board. We touched on this point earlier that everybody needs to speak the language. It's like teaching French, right? If a product manager believes in something, knows his role, they're doing okay, but it requires so many different players to be speaking that language, understanding that game. So your workshops are helping a lot out there. Uh, yeah, but realize we are very tiny and uh, there are thousands and thousands of companies that we never see. And so, it's not about us. It's really just about, I think, the industry. And, you know, the industry forces, there's a lot of people that want to go back to old waterfall ways of working. And I understand why they do. I just, they're not going to get any innovation. I've never seen any innovation come out of that way of working, but I understand why they like it. And so, anyway, it's hard to say. In five or 10 years, the only companies that may be doing good product work are companies like Amazon and Google and Netflix. It's very possible. Um, on the other hand, what I hope, of course, is that many more companies start adopting those practices. There's no reason that uh, other companies can't do that as well. So on my more optimistic days, uh, I, at the very least, we should be able to convince companies that have feature teams to consider real product teams. So in other words, let their product managers be real product managers. At the least, we should be able to get that done. Yeah, thanks. Hey, Marty, it's, uh, it's Howard Chalmers. Um, you know, I read, I read the first edition back before uh, you came to Blackbot and consulted with us. I guess that was 10 years ago now. Um, and the biggest challenge that I saw then was sort of how to convince the powers that be that half of our ideas weren't going to work, but they still needed to continue in it to invest, even though we were failing. Um, so fast forward 10, 11 years, whatever it's been since then. And the biggest challenge is convincing the powers that be that half of our ideas aren't going to work and they need to continue to invest. Um, it's, you know, different powers that be, but it seems like the same investment challenge. Um, I've been most of that time in enterprise software, and it feels a lot like enterprise software is um, waterfall at its core and sometimes 
the teams are trying to do something scrummy. Uh, so you've got this waterfall process with this, you know, trying to be agile back end and, it, you know, a little bit about uh, what Tamura was asking about, about, you know, sort of bottom up. Um, you know, I, I think your comment about how hard it is to change that culture, especially on the enterprise side, is is sort of spot on. Um, and I just wondered if, you know, if you've seen anything different or if, you know, I guess that's the, it's more of a comment, I guess, than a question, um, but it's, it seems to continue to be a challenge and it is a little discouraging, although there are pockets of people, like I, I mentioned, um, I mentioned you in an interview the other day and they're like, oh yeah, I read Marty's book and it changed my whole, the way I think, and this was an engineering guy, it changed the, everything I thought about. I'm like, yes, I think I want to come work with you because I think we could do something really cool together. Um, but one thing I did notice in the book, and I want to kind of bring it back around to that, is you went from a 10-question opportunity assessment in, in the first edition to a four-question opportunity assessment in the second edition. And I was wondering if you've gotten a whole lot of feedback on that. Um, is it simpler, easy to, easier to use? Are you seeing more adoption of that? Or, you know, I've got a couple other questions that are kind of my go-tos that I add on to the four. But um, what, what have you seen as sort of that evolution over the last decade or so? Yeah, it wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, originally there was this 10-question opportunity assessment. But if you looked on the... Uh, in that description, it said, by the way, this is meant to be tailored for every company, you know, whatever the interesting things are. And a lot of company did that. I did that uh, with different companies too. We all tailored it. And what I realized uh, over the years was there were really just four questions that were critical. Everybody had to answer. And then everybody, and then the other ones were more dependent on the company. And so it's one of those things I think that's less is more um, mm. If you can get people to focus on those four all the time, then that's a that's better progress. And then they can add other ones if they want to, you know, consider other things. It's not a problem. But to make sure that they don't lose the four in the bigger set. Um, and there was another reason I did that too, which is, you know, you're always trying to try to get encourage people to keep things in perspective. And an opportunity assessment is supposed to be a 10-minute thing. It is not supposed to be a big deal. And a lot of product people, I mean, I literally saw product managers saying, my job is to write opportunity assessments. And I'm thinking like, wow, what a great job. I'd only have to work about 30 minutes a week and I could just hang out at the beach. I'm like, no, that's not your job. You know, that is such a little administrative part. So. You know, I think by putting it down to critical four questions, which is, you know, pretty much aligned to OKRs, it's, um, it's, it's, it puts it, I think, a little more in perspective. That's all. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you. Sure. I have a question. Um, Let me, do you mind? I wanted to Howard's earlier part of his uh, question or statement. I, I didn't address and I meant to. But, you know, he sort of made the assumption that um, enterprise software pretty much inevitably turns into crap. You know, he didn't say that, by the way. But that's what, uh, you know, the I mean, That's definitely what I meant. That is absolutely <laughs> what I meant. 
Yeah, but that's the implication. And it's, um, and you know, it's really not about enterprise software at all. And I know personally, great enterprise software companies now working as good as the best companies in the world. It's not about that, but it does, it, it's disproportionately represented in enterprise because the root of this is not really so much that, oh, well, they don't realize that half their ideas don't work out. The root of it is, where do these ideas even come from? If they come from the leaders mm. or the stakeholders, which is really what happens in so many of those organizations, then that's really the root of the issue. They're like, they are all attached to their favorite ideas and it's just about delivering those ideas. And they get very frustrated, you know, eventually they'll work, but um, they don't really care. They think they are the ones that are supposed to do that as opposed to empowering product teams to go solve problems. And that's really the difference between the really good companies, really that's the difference between empowered product teams and feature teams. In feature teams, you have these executives or stakeholders that one way or another are passing along a bunch of features. And a lot of times in enterprise software, it's, it's prospective customers and sales that are passing along features. So that's more of the issue and not so much the, uh, you know, the nature of product ideas. My, I interrupted somebody. No, yeah, sorry. go ahead. My question is kind of linked to it. Uh, I'm Emily. I'm a product manager at Katowiki. And what I spend a lot of my time with is actually taking a feature list and then trying to make people understand that we're looking at the problem and not that they already found the solution. So I really like the idea in the book about the outcome-based roadmaps that you describe. But do you have some tips on how to get that going or how should that kind of roadmap look like then? Because yeah, that's kind of could save me some time uh, explaining to my uh, stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, it, it's what I'd really <laughs> like to do, what you want to do, the outcome-based roadmap is meant to be a temporary situation. It's meant to just change the behaviors so that they stop just giving you these features to build. Because you're describing a feature team where the, where the, product team is trying to reverse engineer what the problem to solve mm -hmm. really is. And you know, you can't really blame the stakeholders for asking for features, that's just sort of normal. But what we wanna do is try to redefine the relationship so that you, you know, the way I really describe it in my new book, I describe it as you need to move from a subservient model where you think your team, where the company thinks your team is there to build what they need mm -hmm. to a collaborative model where you are there to build solutions for your customers, but in ways that work for your stakeholders. Yeah. And so that's a very different relationship. If you can redefine the relationship, then the whole outcome-based roadmap becomes really a non-issue. Mm -hmm. So you can do an outcome-based roadmap. They're, they're easy to do. They're just a transition tool. They're meant to kind of rephrase the dialogue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you, if you find yourself doing the same thing a year from now, you won't have done anything. You won't have accomplished anything. No. No, exactly. But I, I like other than, by the way, Emily, other than irritate your stakeholders because you're always telling them what problem are you trying to solve? You know, that they're, they're like, get lost, just build this feature. Yeah. 
Well, what I've tried now is actually have a brainstorm with them and include them in the entire process. So that maybe goes hand in hand with that collaborative uh, uh, solution you're talking about. Yeah, that's definitely better uh, to kind of bring them closer there. But the main thing you need to do is get that focus over to the real customers. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Just, just to add to that, sorry, uh, Sam here, product manager from booking.com. How, how do you convince people to trust you to try that once? Once, once you've done it once, I assume there's a bit of a, a cycle, right? It works. Yeah, no, really no, it's a fair, fair question. And this is sort of what starts that uh, transformation process that Timur had asked before. What, what, how do you kind of get a chance to give this a try? Uh, mm. nor, you know, there's different things that can motivate this change. The most common is that it's just they're frustrated it's not working well. They feel like they've been spending all this money and getting so little. So somebody comes and says, hey, what if we try something else? Um, that, that often works. Sometimes what it takes is Amazon going into your space. And then all yeah. of a sudden, the senior leaders start getting very scared. That happens a remarkable amount. Um, and because they know Amazon is really good. If they decide to go after travel booking, you know, then that would be bad news for booking.com, for example, because they know what they're yeah. doing. So that happens. Sometimes yeah. what happens also is the board of directors replaces the CEO because the, the board doesn't believe the CEO understands technology. Uh, we've all seen that happen in, in, in the industry. Unfortunately, when that happens, it's usually too late, but it does happen. That's what happened at Barnes & Noble, for example. They did realize Amazon was coming after them. Uh, and the board says, we need a leader that can do this. And, and they did remarkable things, but it was already too late. So they needed more time. Hi, Marie and everyone. Can you all hear me? Yes. yes. I'm uh, Gabriel, also product manager for Booking, but in the security department. I also read your book, huge fan. Um, but uh, I noticed that in the book, you don't extend too much for the platform kind of product manager, right? The ones that are not delivering a product for the end user, but uh, that you leverage other teams to achieve goals, right? And my question is regarding um, the outcome-based roadmap. And you talk about how to map outcomes to business impact, right? So in this case, for example, in my case in security, we we have this impact through other teams, enabling other teams. So building this kind of, of roadmap gets even more complicated because you depend on other teams measuring their outcome, the, their, their metrics to showcase the outcome. Do you have any, any suggestion on how to manage these kind of things? Well, it's a really common problem um, because literally a platform team is there to enable the other teams. You know, and so yeah. it is true that we still want to measure by outcomes. In other words, security is a good example. And, you know, you are there providing real service, right? Important service uh, that might be around protecting assets. It might be around uh, um, authentication. It could be around whatever. Yeah. But uh, the, and you should have that. However, it's also true that you're not doing it alone. You're usually doing it in partnership with other product teams. So 
I've always I've always wondered if I should write more about platform teams. I love platform teams myself. I work but um, but the other thing is it's you know first of all it's not ninety percent of product is really the same platform versus experience team. In the new book, I do talk more about team topology and talk more about the power of platform teams, but it's more just making the argument that platform teams are a good thing to do. Uh, they're not really talking so much about the nature of what's different, although I do address questions like OKRs are more difficult for platform teams for this same reason. Definitely. So, I have written some, if you Google platform product manager, you'll find some, but there isn't that much that has been published on it. Most people say the same thing. It's mostly the same, but it's more technical, obviously, right? And very often the, uh, and your, your customers, you know, your, your direct customers are the developers on the other teams. So you have to factor that in, obviously. But, um, you know, the good news is, more and more good product companies are investing more and more into the platforms, even purely internal platforms. So I like that. Yeah, cool. Yeah, just, just that the, the developers are your customers just becomes a little bit more complicated in terms of feature requests because now they know what they want and then try to give you the solution. So it's very it's complicated. Normal. Normal. <laughs> exactly right. It, it is harder. And by the way, it's not an accident that at places like Google and uh, Facebook, they put their best engineers on the platform because of that. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. I wanted also to uh, maybe also to to echo like you know examples of the outcome uh, based roadmap and that I also noticed that in the book I find it very nice to you know to reference and then to read like uh, from time to time again just to sort of as a checklist of things that I should be doing as a product manager right uh, but then and then there are some good examples of some of the product managers at uh, I think Adobe right and and a few others. But then I, I sometimes miss like exactly right like okay I need to do an outcome base and this is exact exactly how it should be or this is a, a clear example so that then you know okay now I can adapt it to my company uh, and I know that there are some examples on the SBPG uh, website as well right but uh, not for like everything that is mentioned on the book is that sort of like a bit maybe on on purpose because maybe you know it's maybe not one formula for for everyone but um, or what, what do you think about that? It's it's a really common question. People want, and, and by the way, like for example, I got lots of requests for examples on product vision. And so I just said mm. fine. And I put lots of examples, more examples of product vision just about a month ago. I put this out there. And you know what? I got a bunch yeah. more questions saying, oh, I can't see an example exactly of what I need. And I realized that what people are doing <laughs> is they don't want to think through it. It really does. You know, you will never find exactly the example you're looking for. And I would much yeah. rather you focus the energy on, on going deep, really thinking about it deeply. Uh, yeah, the examples only do so much. You know, you, bottom line, at certain yeah. point, you're 
have to go and solve it, whatever it is. Now, I do think you everybody should have a good manager that can help you when you need it for your particular situation. But yeah. uh, it's, it's just human nature. The, the worst example of this is actually product strategy. Everybody wants to like step one, two, three for product strategy. And I'm always explaining that yeah. is not how product strategy works. You're going to have to do some real work to get a good product <laughs> strategy. It's not a formula. And a lot of people really struggle with that. They yeah. want that formula. Yeah. Yeah, so um, going back, Someone yeah, I, I have a, another comment, maybe because I saw I was reading the, the, the chat and um, really interested that many people are talking about this um, same problem of platform product manager or platform product. Um, one of the challenges we have had by linking outcomes uh, to business uh, uh, objectives was to understand how our product impacts the other team metrics right and um, sometimes it's very difficult to to make them measure something because sometimes the other teams doesn't have the necessary metrics to follow up so we started taking a look more inside and uh, this is our current approach trying to to achieve this um, create a set of metrics internally that we can um, use as a model, maturity model of the product to link on how this is impacting the, the other teams and the business metric in the end. So we can focus on the product maturity ourselves. So we can say now link the outcome-based roadmap to our product maturity because we know how it links to the business objectives. So a little bit of an abstraction there. Yeah, be careful. First of all, don't use that word maturity. Yeah. <laughs> that is a terrible word, means something very different. That's not what you're talking about. Uh, what I, I don't know exactly, I would love to hear which what's an example, but most of the time when people say what you just said, what they're really describing are activities they're saying like we think if we can do 10 iterations a week then we're good and we're doing our part that's activity that is vanity no. um, mm. so if you mean there is this discussion this is sort of uh, a little uh, nuanced in the okr world but in terms of key results you you know they have to be business results or yes. result, real results, not output. So they need to be outcome. But there is business outcome, like we've doubled our revenue, and there is product outcome, like yeah. we had a 25% increase in signups. That's so, and it's okay if we believe that product outcomes are a proxy for business outcomes, that's okay. If that's what you mean, then that's fine. Yeah. But you would never use the term maturity for that. Okay. Yeah, I know it was more about um, insecurity. For example, we don't talk much about revenue. We talk about risk, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. there is a framework that we use to measure risk. So if we know how our product impacts this uh, framework, this score, right? Then we can uh, understand how different metrics uh, that we can impact in our product will end up impacting the business metric. So it's a little bit complicated, but 
No, no, that's reasonable. I, I've heard other risk teams, for example, focus on false negatives and false positives. And they know that if they can uh, in, reduce those, that is not directly revenue, but that will translate to revenue. That's an example of product outcomes versus business outcomes. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to, to mention also, like, there is one uh, quote that I also share from the book, and I, I there was sort of like a debate that started uh, going on that I thought it would be interesting also to, to maybe if you can expand more on that, Marian, and also hear from the others what they think. That it says, uh, when a product succeeds, it's because everyone on the team did what they needed to do. But when a product fails, it's the pro product manager's uh, fault. And how do you see that playing, for example, also when indeed it's, I don't know, a stakeholders just sending you features to do, right? Well, then that's a feature team. That's not a product manager for that. You know, in a feature team, you would never say what I said. Yeah. <laughs> in a feature team, the truth is in a feature team, you don't even need a product manager. You need a project manager. And you can't yeah. hold the project manager accountable that way. But the point of an empowered product team is that you can hold a product manager really accountable for the results. And that's where that quote comes from. So really all of my writing is only meant to apply to product teams, not to feature teams, and certainly not to delivery teams, like with, with project processes like safe and less. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but then, for example, on the book, it says, uh, right, you also mentioned, uh, I want to clarify what I mean by product. And then I think you give the example of uh, if it's an e-commerce, then it's the product is basically everything except what is actually being sold, right? Right. But it's also now common, right, that on an e-commerce uh, business, there will be one product team or, well, one team with interior product manager that is only uh, in charge of, uh, I don't know, the shopping cart. And then another one in charge of uh, uh, the checkout, for example, right? Would then, even though they have the the freedom and the autonomy, would then they be a, a feature team, or? No, no. I mean, that's a di these are different things. Um, so, if you want to talk a kind of product as e-commerce, that's say okay, e-commerce is a kind of product. We still have to break mm -hmm. up our product teams different ways. We can break them up many different ways. You described yeah. one way that some kinds of companies break it up, which is by step in a journey, like shopping, paying, shipping, that's fine. That's one way. There's mm -hmm. other ways to break it up too. Now you're just talking about the scope of a product team, what that product team is responsible for. No matter what the scope of a product team, you can still have business outcomes or you can give them features to build. So no matter what, okay. they can still be as feature teams or product teams. Okay, I understand. Do you, just, just to add to that, do you not run the risk of splitting the scope of a product team to be such a small piece of scope that it becomes not valuable for it to be a business outcome? Well, not so much not valuable, but don't get me wrong. I don't like those skinny little teams you're describing. I like teams to have end-to-end -end responsibility. This is now, we've moved into a different topic. It's called team topology. That's what this is referring to, is how do you structure your teams? Do you remember before when I was telling Gabrielle how much I like platform teams? 
Well, yeah. I didn't say this, but the reason I'm such a big fan of platform teams is it lets us give experienced teams more end-to-end -end responsibility because it raises the level of abstraction so that they can have a much broader scope of responsibility. In fact, many experienced teams have, they can be responsible for a full iPhone native app, end-to-end, -end, the whole thing. Now that's doable because it's not deep, it's shallow, but it's broad. So this gets a little complicated, but that's why we love platforms. They let us give much more uh, control and autonomy to the experienced product teams. So Sam, you're right. I don't like those tiny little teams. You know, what you hear is people say, you know, we're just a one little cog in a giant wheel. We can't do anything ourselves. Everything we need to do, even a dumb little feature requires all kinds of teams to work with us. That's not very empowering at all. Uh, it's also very slow, right? Because there are so many dependencies. So no, I'm not I'm not advocating that. I'm advocating you know moving away from that. But you can still have business outcomes. What the other piece of the puzzle, though, no matter what you do, even if you have a very tiny responsibility, you can still figure out which team is making positive versus negative impact with an A-B test. So A-B test will let us isolate out that contribution. I, I also wanted like, you know, on the on the book, there is a lot of, um, well, pages dedicated to product discovery, which of, of course is very important, but then it also made me think, do you think there are not that many then techniques or frameworks or more dedicated than to product uh, delivery in itself? Um, well, there's many books, many, many books on product delivery. Uh, if you think about it, Scrum is a product delivery process. Kanban is a product delivery process. There are thousands of books or, or probably my favorite product delivery techniques are continuous deployment, continuous delivery. Those are, there mm -hmm. are already plenty of books on delivery. That's the world of engineers are responsible for that. There's very few books on discovery. And, yeah. and so that's what Inspired is trying to speak to. Yeah. What, what would you say is the main responsibility of the product manager in, in delivery, right? Because uh, of course with product discovery, you're gonna end up like, okay, you, you know what should be built, right? Why? Of course, the engineer is gonna decide how you do it, but then what, what would you say is the main responsibility or role of the product manager on the delivery part? Well, there's a couple, and I, I want to be clear. It, product teams do discovery and delivery every day. That's what they do every day. Yeah. The product manager and designer are focused almost all on discovery work, and the engineers almost all on delivery work, but they're helping each other, and they are responsible to help each other. So the main ways product managers help the engineers on delivery is, number one, when you actually fin you know coding and QAing things, you will find other situations and you need answers for. So you need to be mm -hmm. available to answer that. And second is there are sometimes, this is less common with continuous delivery, but there are sometimes situations where there are release management concerns, uh, like should this be made visible to this kind of user or should we wait until something has happened? 
that obviously is a product manager needs to participate in that. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other person obviously that plays a big role in this question is product marketing. Yeah. 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 Cool. So someone wants to make a question or? Uh, I have another one. If nobody else has a question, I already asked. But Go for uh, it, yeah. <laughs> I was very curious about the principal product manager role you also described because we recently introduced this in our company. But as I read it in your book, it's a completely different function. Uh, so I was curious <laughs> on your vision uh, on this, and I was really yeah excited to read it that it's actually something else. <laughs> well, I'd be curious to hear what you have. I've never actually seen much variation on it around the world, but uh, so I'd be curious how you're using it. But normally, it's an individual contributor, product manager at the top of the individual contributor ladder. That's all. So it's like a senior product manager, but even better. And and I want to be clear, it's a very prestigious role. So if a company has a hundred product managers, they might have one or two principal product managers. It's very prestigious. Okay, that, that's interesting to know. <laughs> at, good yeah. at good companies like a Google, it's it's equivalent to a director or a VP even in mm -hmm. compensation. Yeah, I've huh. seen it. I've seen that done really poorly, um, where it's just another. You know, it's based on seniority. It's based on tenure with the company, especially. You know, I've, I mentioned earlier, been in a lot of enterprise software companies, um, and it's someone who they think probably ought to be a manager, but maybe doesn't have management skills, um, and it, and not a like Marty said that prestige. You know, I look for someone if I'm hiring a, a principal product manager. It's the person who embodies everything I want to see in product discovery and delivery and can sort of lead efforts from a product management perspective, but really has to focus on being that unbelievable individual contributor. Yeah, it, that's what it's for. Um, anyway, and it's... It, there is this notion of dual career ladders where you can either be a manager, people manager, or you can be an individual contributor. And the industry learned a long, long time ago that it's a really bad idea to try to convince somebody to, uh, to try to basically make, to make it so that if they want more money, they have to go into management. That's a really hmm. bad idea. You want to make it so they want they go into management for the right reasons. And so the reason we have principal engineers, principal designers, principal product managers is so that somebody can stay as an individual contributor, but just getting more and more accomplished, like Howard was saying. So if your company's using that for some other definition, then you know it's gonna it's not a big deal because there's so few of them, but um, you, whenever you retitle something, you make it hard for people career-wise to either come to you or move on in the future to another company and leverage what they've done. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Thanks, sure. Marty. Just to go a little bit deeper onto that question, if you have a minute, uh, 
again the role of principal pm versus a principal engineer like engineering is established people in the engineering world would see principal uh, engineer as somebody who's deep in the technology other teams consult with that person to figure out the yeah. architectures kind of thing but, but it's not a manager right it's not a people not a manager. manager yeah not and a manager same, same with principal yeah. product manager and same with principal designer just like you said just substitute engineering or product for engineering designer product so let's say if i if a principal pm were managing the scope of a project of, of or, or a piece of product what would be the relationship between him or her and the other senior pms or pms working on the same scope or well we're talking one product team this is one product team product team has a product manager could be whatever level they have a designer could be whatever level could and it has at least two engineers could be whatever level so mm -hmm. they're all so for example let's say you had a principal product manager because that product this was a very hard and important product so the principal product manager is a rock star excellent and then you have a designer working with that person it doesn't have to be a principal designer it would be very rare but it's got a designer of whatever level and it's got some engineers at whatever level. I see. Okay. So it's just the scope and the importance and the hard, hard, how hard the problem is got nothing to do with the size of the team or. Right. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Also besides the complexity of the problem, maybe as well, the, the knowledge in the domain, right? It can affect, uh, so for example, product manager in security, uh, products, if he is very knowledgeable of the security domain also can, uh, yeah, you would expect at every level product manager, senior product manager at every level, you would expect them to be much more knowledgeable about the domain in this case is just one of the dimensions. Okay. I, I also wanted to mention, Mari, you also, not only on the book, I think also on a lot of the blogs, right? You mentioned that uh, you, you like developers or engineers because uh, a lot of the time the great ideas come from them, of course. Uh, how do you see also the role now of like, you know, more data scientists or uh, yeah, data analysts have different titles sometimes, right? Um, yeah. Because I've also seen it sometimes maybe more speaking of product teams that you know there's a data scientist full-time dedicated to one team sometimes it's like share across different teams how have you seen it maybe working uh, best as well well the real issue isn't well, the real issue is just how many of them do you have um, most companies would rather have mm. more data scientists um, and just like you know they're engineers basically and so you are they are going to be a great source of innovation so we love them it depends on your product. Sometimes you need one on your team, full-time member on your team. Other times you've got one assigned to three or four teams, whatever it might be. But uh, yeah, and of course there's a little difference between a data scientist and a data engineer, and then there's a bigger difference with a data analyst. But these are, these are great roles today, especially for consumer companies. Yeah, okay. I've got a question if I can. Sure. Yes. Hey, um, so we're we're a startup, we're a B2C company. There's about a hundred of us now. We're growing from about 10 people and we're now expanding into multiple product teams. Um, 
And so we're, we've got a company mission that everyone's behind. We've got bets that we believe are going to get us there. But the bit that I'm struggling with is how do we fold in product strategy so that the stakeholders across the business buy in with that sequence? So um, <clears throat> we might have 10 pieces of, uh, we might have 10 ideas that we think are going to get us to uh, towards our bets and our goals, but we can only work on maybe one or two of those ideas. But everyone's eager to work on all on more. So sometimes the, for example, the ops team might pick up uh, an idea and work on it without product. Um, but so how do you get alignment with what order the product team attacks those problems? Yeah. Um, so you sound like you are describing a company without a product strategy um, okay. at all. Um, and, you know, placing bets is one of those terms where sometimes that if you have a product strategy, that's great. If you don't have a product strategy, then what it, I would rather rephrase placing bets to just throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. So I just sent you a link. This is a very big topic. It's an hour topic on its own, product strategy. But it doesn't sound like you have that. And I would argue that at your size especially, you can't afford not to have a, a, a real product strategy. That should be driving which bets you choose to make. Mm -hmm. It's not about stakeholders either. They should understand uh, the strategy and the vision. They should understand that. But this is more about how do you make sure, because you don't have that many people and you can't afford to waste uh, your efforts. So product strategy is about, you know, it's not about working hard, it's about working smart. And so- yeah. That's what I would encourage you to do is go through that with your head of product and say, you know, do we have this or not? Perfect. Thank you. Sure. Cool. And I, I'm aware also of the time because I know, Mark, you, you had something else. I only have like one more minute because I have to uh, get ready for my next. Uh, I have a yeah, no, I did. Yeah, I wanted to ask everyone if, if they have the book, maybe you can take a screenshot and then also just yes, say thanks to Marty for, for the time and for, you know, well, accessing to this card with us. Sure. For the ones that have it, then we, we can take the, the screenshot. Okay, I'm going to take three, two, one. Perfect. Marty, thank you very much. Uh, it was very nice to, to speak with you and well to hear all your insights. So thank, thank you again. My pleasure. Uh, okay, guys. Nice to meet Thank everybody. You. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to check the upcoming discussions and join us, go to protobookclub.com.